podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. To deeply heal anything, we have to better understand the symptoms and their root causes. If pain and illness are messages, then we need to hear, heed, and work with them. Denying, burying, or eradicating symptoms and their inherent messages with superficial healing or chemicals are typically only temporary fixes. Just as important as healing work, if not more important, is prevention. We've all gone to practitioners of all types and felt great afterward. But without applying new tools and new ways of being, the symptoms invariably return. Sometimes they reappear very quickly. Sometimes it takes years. If you have a back pain, for example, and you do all the things necessary to get you out of pain, but don't address the underlying causes, the pain can return in the same or even a different area. If the latter occurs, your practitioner may give it another name and treat you in the same ways that seemed successful the first time. But if those treatments were successful in the deepest possible way the first time, the odds on it returning in the same spot or elsewhere would have been dramatically lessened. Typically, there are numerous causative layers that need to be uncovered and, ideally, they are worked with one at a time. Each layer has its own story and should be read appropriately. Each story has a theme. The most common theme among the empaths and HSPs I've worked with is responsibility a misguided and overblown, even subconscious sense of responsibility for others is the root cause when someone absorbs unhealthy energies from other people. This overblown sense of responsibility typically began in your more formative years. Some of you literally heard, it's your responsibility to take care of blank. Others assumed the burden of helping others after noticing an ill or unhappy parent or sibling. If, as a result of our acute feelings of responsibility, we have the innate sense or received the verbalized confirmation that our actions are received positively, we are more likely to repeat them. And when repeated enough, actions become patterns. As a result of this embedded pattern, as we age, we attract others outside the immediate family to whom we feel responsible. Friends, romantic partners, work associates, even spouses who know we'll be there for them. 
If left unhealed, this overdeveloped sense of responsibility can increase to the point that we feel the weight of social issues or even the world on our shoulders. For any individual who is already highly susceptible to incoming energies, adding unhealthy responsibility is like walking around subconsciously saying, I'll take your grief or I'll take your anger. Because we've not known otherwise, we don't just temporarily feel what's coming our way. We actually embody these energies. And they will stay within us, driving our choices until they are consciously uncovered and healed. Writes David Markowitz. Valeria interviews David. He is a two-time best-selling author, dynamic workshop leader, and intuitive healing facilitator. He teaches empaths and highly sensitive persons how to healthily protect themselves and how to heal absorbed energies that have led to anxiousness, lethargy, heavy-heartedness, physical pains, and more. Dave's book, Self-Care for the Self-Aware, was in Amazon's top 20 in its category for 41 consecutive months. His latest, Empathopedia, expands on that work and emphasizes how energetic and emotional support and a sense of connection with others are vital to the healing process. His work has been endorsed by Shirley MacLaine, Daniel Brinkley, Lee Harris, Paul Levy, and more. And he has shared the lecture bill with Deepak Chopra. Here is the interview with David Markowitz. In your own words, who is Dave Markowitz? <laughs> Question of the ages, right? Who, who, who is anybody? Um, I guess the, the more uh, platitude type of answer is I'm a spirit inhabiting a body. Um, but for purposes of this work <laughs> and what we're trying to get out into the world, I'm a highly sensitive person, empath, author, uh, intuitive healer, husband, like to think a good friend, <laughs> and I think most importantly, a compassionate listener and a heart-centered being. Wonderful. Thank you. Before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Empathopedia, Healing for Empaths and Highly Sensitive Persons, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. What is the difference between an empath and a highly sensitive person, and maybe I can stretch a little bit more to a compassionate person. Yeah, it's a great question. The empath versus HSP thing has been discussed at great length by many people, and to me, I, I like things succinct if possible. So to me, a, highly, a compassionate person, obviously someone who exudes compassion, that is a big part of being empathic and highly sensitive. The main difference is someone who's highly sensitive can sense what's happening with other people and situations and typically be okay, maybe a bit overwhelmed, and they might need some work and some tools or fine-tuning. The empath takes it one step further and actually takes on and even embodies the energies, the thoughts, the feelings, and sometimes even the experiences of other people. And I think we're all born empathic. I think that as time goes on, like many skills, if you work with them, 
they can become more beneficial to your experience while being here. Or if they're misunderstood or denied or repressed, they end up being burdens. So typically people who come to me are more empathic than highly sensitive. They've absorbed energy from other people and situations enough that they're actually dealing with symptoms and maybe have been uh, for many years that have not really been uh, helped by more traditional methods. And uh, the work that I do really is specific for empaths or, and it works for highly sensitive persons also. Um, it's a pretty subtle difference, but potentially pretty major one. Yeah, in, in a way they're all connected, but they, like you said, there are some differences. Yeah. Um, so my next question is a general one about well-being. What is the meaning of well-being to you? To me, well-being means I can get up out of bed without any aches or pains. <laughs> right. Uh, a lot of people my age can't. Okay. <laughs> Certainly many that are older have difficulty as well. I think it's also a, a full body thing, not just a physical, but an emotional, spiritual, mental, psychological uh, grouping that says, I'm okay. Maybe that's the best one. I'm okay being who I am. I think there's a lot of well-being in self-acceptance. Yeah, I love that. And uh, that resonates a lot. Uh, my next warm-up question is general about life. What is life to you? What is your understanding of what life is? Uh, similar to the first question, there's the new age platitude. We're here to experience and to evolve. And, but in that case, I'm going to actually stick with it because sometimes cliches are cliches for a reason. <laughs> I think that's what we're doing here. And you know, people can look at that very differently. Some want to sort of go back in time to a so-called better time for certain things, but that's fighting life. That's fighting the flow. It's never going to happen. Every moment is different. And the, those who adapt to societal changes in addition to internal changes, typically are going to do the best. Those who fight, scratch and claw for the old way of being or against life in general, they're going to have pretty challenging experience while being here. So I think the evolving means accepting what's there and then seeing who am I being in response to this and how can I be, if I need to be, a certain way in, re in response to what's happening as opposed to reaction. I love that. And that's so true. I love your wisdom already. <laughs> what do you think is the opposite of life? You know, on a very physical level, obviously death, but even in a more perhaps eclectic way of looking at it, I think stagnation would be, it's a kind of a death. I mean, maybe not a physical leaving the body kind of death, but perhaps a giving up on life or really not evolving or not inquiring, not learning. That sounds, I mean, I can, I can see the appeal for that at times, especially if someone's had a very challenging life. I kind of want that peaceful middle road and there's also that other part that says I need to welcome the roller coaster, which life tends to be. Certainly for myself and many that I work with, the highs and the lows and learning to accept and roll with those as opposed to fighting. Both and people can fight the highs, people also can fight the lows. But really rolling, kind of like the ocean. You know, the ocean has its moments where it's very calm and then of course it can be a tsunami and that can be just a few minutes or less difference in time. 
but the ocean doesn't say I'm bad or I'm wrong for doing or being whatever it's being. Just we humans tend to do that. And uh, yeah, I feel like I'm going on a tangent here, but <laughs> I think you get the idea. <laughs> no, that's, uh, yeah, that's profound. And that's so true to me. Um, that reminds me of um, a lot of the Zen teachings, actually. I, the life simply is. And I love the way you're saying about not pushing away anything, but if, if we have to, then it's okay too to accept that becoming stuck and stagnated. So I love that. Ironic. Yeah. Yeah, ironically, mm-hmm. accepting that one is stuck is part of the process of becoming unstuck. Right, right. Right. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Um, my next question is about freedom. What does it mean to be free to you? Ultimately, spiritual liberation. But until that, I think the freedom to choose the higher path, the truth, even if that's on an individual basis versus the pattern or the collective unconscious or what we're taught by society, religion, family, culture. And there may be some things that are positive in there, but overall, if we look at our experience, a lot of things that we're taught are simply untrue if we really break it down. And we get to choose a different version of truth, ideally one more geared towards love and oneness. And that, that to me is a freedom. It's a great word. I think most people actually want freedom. A lot of times, you know, people write on my intake form what they're looking to achieve. And while I'm working with them, I know that when I say the word freedom, there's a resonance. There's something very powerful about that word. Uh, the opposite, death, stagnation, bondage, um, doesn't feel good to the spirit. And of course, therefore, won't feel good to our physical life as well. Right. Um, freedom, it's connected to flow, like flowing with life. And the opposite would be yeah, stagnation, death, the opposite of life. Or following the herd. Right, that can that can be a bit of a stagnation as well. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I didn't think about that very much. Is yeah, but that word flow. Sorry to catch up. The word flow is right up there with freedom. It's. I can speak for myself and the people I work with. At least I can't speak for others, um, or I'll take the liberty of speaking for those that I've worked with more accurately. Flow is what we're looking to achieve. Being in the flow of life, whatever that brings. Uh, Trusting the bigger picture that even if something hurts, something beautiful can come out of it if we deal with it well. You know, one, one of the examples I like to use when people ask me about that, where they may have bought into the idea that life is only love and light. And, and I get that. It sounds really wonderful. It might be a wonderful way to sell out a weekend workshop. But an example of the pain followed by beauty is a woman giving childbirth. And certainly from the male perspective, I at least look at that and say, oh, hell no. And I can't even imagine for a moment what that feels like. And then sometime after having birth, I hear many w- women say, okay, I want to have another one. And it's just like, wow. You know, you know. But what I've realized was when I stepped out of my judgment about that, at least, was that there's a, a balance and some pain gives birth, literally in this case, to such beauty that it's worth going through that pain. And in a way, that's a kind of a microcosm for life in the bigger picture. So many times I've been through sometimes pretty serious pain, physical and emotional. 
And by not fighting it is actually how I got where I am and to be content with where I am as opposed to constantly clawing and scratching. And I think a lot of it came from allowing the flow, like that word again, allowing the flow of life to take me or guide me, as it were, where I need to go or in line with my soul's experience, which tends to not really care too much if I have some pain. It's just my own human mind that has the judgments about that. How did you do it? How did you learn to flow with life? Because <laughs> fighting didn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually that's what happens. <laughs> um, yeah, we give up that um, the old way of thinking and acting and doing things, right? Um, so I'm almost at the end of my warm-up questions. I have a few more. Uh, this is the next one. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? Do you have a vision for a new reality? No, <laughs> if I can be honest. I mean, I have a vision to some degree, but I think that if I get attached to that, I'm probably in for some disappointment. So I like to think acceptance is the vision for myself at least. Can I accept all the pain that's happening right now? Can I be in it without being overwhelmed by it? And I, I, mean, I like to believe that at some point, everyone will wake up to, that, to the essence uh, that holds us together, which I think is unconditional love. Uh, fortunately, I don't really see that happening very soon. I, I remember hearing one author saying that on a, on a scale, if we're going to scale our, our human evolution as if, it were, as if we were in school, that were barely in kindergarten. And I know some people can take offense to that and you know are pursuing 5D reality. But to me, if you can't master 3D, it's not really worth pursuing 5D quite yet. It's like trying to like, you know, climb the top of a ladder or get to the top of a ladder without using the bottom few steps. So um, I don't have a specific vision. It's, it's I've actually never been asked that question before. I think I've done hundreds of interviews on the vision for the future. I guess there's a short term and, and long term. The short term I discussed, and the long term I discussed as well. It's uh, there. One perhaps is the route to the other. Right. It's interesting. So, in a way, you're saying that the world's greatest need is acceptance. You use that word again. I can. I, I can. I'll go with that. Yeah. I think that sounds good. Yeah. You're making me think, yeah, Valeria. You know, you know just, <laughs> I appreciate um, it. Actually, I like being challenged. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> <it> great. <laughs> it's not on purpose, that's for sure. That's fine if it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to flow with my own. Yeah, for some reason, I'm attracted to these questions, so I'm just putting out there. Do you connect acceptance to surrender and letting go? To me, there's a pretty big difference between surrender and giving up. I think letting go is actually impossible. I'll, I'll explain that. Um, so for example, someone comes to me with a back pain and they say, I want to get rid of it. I want to let go of it. I want to let go of the idea of it. Well, on a mind-body medicine perspective, that back pain is a message. And if we don't tune into that message, it's going to get worse and worse. So to treat that message as something I want to get let go of or get rid of is actually fighting life fighting the potential of a real deep healing. The difference between surrender and giving up is actually, I think, also really huge. I think there's an unhealthy version which would be giving up. Like, I, I, you know, I just exasperated, I just can't do anything anymore. And I end up not willing to do anything else. 
uh, surrender to me, or at least my, what I would call a healthy surrender, is really tuning into the spiritual essence for guidance, surrendering the idea that I need to know or that I do know what life should be like or what, uh, how I should be in a certain moment or anything should be. I remember seeing in a movie a long time ago, it was, it was dubbed, I think it was from Mexico, and the, one of the women in the, in the movie said something, and the subtitle said that was, uh, arrogance is thinking that you know more than God does. I thought that was really powerful, and I think sometimes the arrogance of the human mind says it needs to be a certain way. But the surrender to something greater than that, to be guided by that. And fortunately, I've been able to do that for the last two plus decades. And I think it's why my business is doing so well and why I'm so healthy. Because I've practiced this, what I'm calling the healthy surrender. What, what needs to happen now beyond my personal wants and desires, which when I really step back and look at them, are typically the end results of family and culture, maybe even media perhaps religion, uh, nation, et cetera, right? They're all, they're oftentimes different depending on what one is exposed to. So, and that's beautiful. I mean, we, we need the variety, but is there an underlying truth under all of that that I'm willing to surrender into and then follow, really make, uh, not just surrender, but like hear and to it uh, and then go with what's there. That can be a challenge, but a worthwhile challenge. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Yeah. So my next question is about love. What is love to you? When it's done well, <laughs> it's un <laughs> unconditional acceptance. It's loving someone or self for who they are, how they are, where they are, even why they are, maybe even when they are. Sometimes it's that simple. Not always easy to do because, again, the human mind tends to get in the way. But I know that when I'm in that place, magic happens. I know that when I'm in the receiving end of that place from someone else, I can feel so much deeper and be and do so much more than I can do like sort of on my own when I'm not feeling that love coming my way. I try to, I try to emit that. Uh, in my sessions, especially in uh, group work, I really believe that the more loving I can be and, you know, using the prior definition of accepting, can I accept who's ever in front of me for who they are? Not always easy, especially if they're really believing things that I might consider offensive, but that doesn't mean they're not worthy of love. Who's to say if someone had enough love, they might not be in a place where they're so belligerent or even a bully. I love your answer for that. Yeah, so it's unconditional love, accepting without conditions, right? Um, what is your understanding and idea of peace? On a world stage, of course, you know, means no war. But at the same time, peace could be a very internal thing. Nelson Mandela was peaceful in his kept in in, in while in prison. It's peaceful within. I think it's also a, a form of acceptance, not fighting. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's an interesting word in that so many of us are searching for that, and sometimes we equate that with real what might be called um, 
moderate type of living where there's no highs and no and no lows. Again, I get why someone might seek that, especially if they had what might be considered too many lows. They might seek that piece, but I don't really see that as an option in the bigger picture, meaning it takes a lot of work to be peace in the presence of our own or someone else's pain to, uh, and maybe it goes back to acceptance. I can accept I can be peaceful, but it's not the, sometimes it's kind of seen as this, you know, we're all going to get together, all be, be one big family. And until that happens, I mean, it's okay to hold that vision, but I think until that happens, we have to be even more at peace with other people's points of view that don't agree with ours. And ideally, talk to them about it. And, you know, this year certainly has made that more difficult with the pandemic. People are not getting out and about and we're more isolated perhaps than ever. That's been a trend for a while with social media and digital communication. And now it's really gone extreme in that direction where we can micromanage who we associate with. Whereas before that, Maybe someone had to go work with someone that was very opposite them in certain ways. So it was more challenging then. Now the challenge is to seek out those people that are different. And are they willing to have a conversation without either one of us needing to be right, but rather listening in? I found that once I listen to alternative points of views, I understand the person better. I'm able to be at peace with who they are. And interestingly, also, they're, they, their feeling heard, seen, and understood can actually minimize, if not lessen dramatically, their need to be belligerent or fighting me or others about X, Y, or Z. Right. Wow. So there's so many benefits to being compassionate, right? Two more questions for you. This is about God. What, where, and who is God to you? <laughs> I almost choked on my drink of water here. Uh, it's an interesting question that it's kind of the kind of question that people listen to and want to hear that what they believe is true. Because I've seen so many beliefs in a God of some type that are very different from my own. Uh, I can only go by my experience rather than what I was taught. And to me, that energy that we call God is unconditional love, but also total wisdom, total compassion, total peace. And if I can tune into that, I can be more like that. There's a, a phrase in the Quaker religion that says, that of God within me. I've always found that really powerful. I didn't. I never really resonated with some of the new age philosophy that says, I am God, I find that being much more egocentric. And I have a joke about it. I'll, I'll share, which um, well, I'll let you judge if it's funny or not. But <laughs> I, I remember talking to someone about that once. And I said, who am I to say that I'm God? God has, is pure wisdom, pure love, can do, create anything. I can barely make a good sandwich. How can I say for a second that I'm God, right? <laughs> but cute. the Quaker vision of it, I have God within me. I have a light within me that I can access when I quiet my mind. That seems much more palatable to me anyway. And again, I'm not really here to argue with anyone. 
uh, and, and not that you were, but if people are listening in and they have their version of what God is or who God is, that's great. I mean, if it helps you be more loving and more accepting, I'm all for it. Go for it. Go with God, as the phrase might be. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> Problems happen when I, when I think we project our understanding of that or what we're taught about that and say this is the only answer, this is the only right answer. That becomes problematic. I mean, how many wars have been fought because one person says, my God is better than your God or different than yours? It's uh, it's abhorrent to my personal sense. Uh, I like to think most people's, but you know, it, there's an insecurity that needs to prove itself, and typically in the ma- in the masculine that says, you know, you need to believe what I believe, or you know, or I'm fe- or I'm going to feel threatened, therefore I'm going to hurt or even kill you. It's very insecure. Uh, it's based in insecurity, the need to convince someone else of what they believe to be true, especially about something that really can be so personal, which is a relationship with what some call God. Right. I agree. I absolutely agree. Do you see a difference between spirituality and religion? The more common definitions of those from what I've seen are that religion teaches you what to think or spirituality teaches you how to think. But there's also a what to think in the spiritual movements. And they all have their place. I like to think that everything is an evolution and it's not my job to judge anyone where they are in that evolution, nor is it my job to think that I'm above or better than anyone else but I've graduated. There's a, a chapter in my book, uh, it's called The Graduation, and it's about learning things that, uh, that are different from what we used to learn. So let's just say I'm a member of um, a community and I'm believing everything that's there. And one day I start seeing, mm, this doesn't really resonate with me. I'm going to seek something else. And I find B community and B community seems to be more evolved. At that point, if I'm a member of the B community, for me not to still love the people in the A community is highly judgmental. And I think actually against what those communities might be representative or their teachings. So a lot of the teachings in many religions say don't judge other people. So if I'm evolving to something of a different, I don't know, stature or level, if I'm judging where I used to be, those people who I perceive to be where I used to be, I haven't mastered the most basic tenant, which is judgment of other. So long answer, but I, I hope that's clear. <laughs> yeah, very, very clear. <laughs> okay, yeah. okay. Judgment, it resonates as violence to me. Yeah, I get that. My last warm-up question, what do you think is the ultimate purpose of life? I think to evolve, to learn, to experience. Yeah. They all sound really good to me and <laughs> make sense too. Uh, do you believe in life after death? I do. I'm not attached to it, but I do. Like I'm open to being wrong, but I like to believe. Is it, It's interesting when you think about beliefs versus facts, right? Beliefs can be so firm that this, no, I believe this to be true. And yet, me as an individual, I don't have the fact that there is a life after death. Although I've actually channeled those that have deceased. So it leads me to believe that there's something else out there, but I don't have that experience in my conscious recollection to say that what I believe is actually factual, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. I like the way you said it. Uh, you believe, but you're not attached to that belief, <laughs> to that thought. Yeah. I'm hoping to being wrong. I'm hoping I'm right. I mean, you know, it, seemed, it would seem kind of uh, counterintuitive or even counterlogical considering 
the understanding or maybe the belief that we're here to evolve, how can that be just one lifetime? I mean, how much are we evolving in our, you know, 80, 90, 100 years that we're here versus what could be evolved? You know, the the length of the soul, perhaps, I'm sure is much more than, well, I can't say I'm sure, but I'm, I like to believe it's open to much more than 100 years. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I like that. Do you somehow connect unconditional love to trust? Trust in the mystery of life? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's a great word. Trust. Can I trust what I don't understand is a really great mystery of life question. So let's talk about your work. Um, the first question also had to be this one. How did you become a writer, Dave? I always enjoyed writing, even as a kid. I never followed the rules, though. I remember in college, we were told to read a story. It was a very famous story and write a report about it. And I read it and I didn't like the ending. So instead of writing a book report, I changed the ending <laughs> and I submitted <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it. And my teacher, I mean, God bless her. She was just, you know, she could have really come down on me, which other teachers had, had done for something like that. But I remember her specifically that she said, super creative, wonderful total, you know, A plus as far as that. But now I need you to write a real paper so I can give you a grade. (laughs) (laughs) So I did get some interesting positive feedback with creative writing classes and songwriting. And there was just something about it that was very healing in many ways. Uh, Even writing letters to my grandma when I was my teens, 20s, didn't have email. Right. And, and she really liked to write. She would write me like four page letters and she was in her 90s already. And so there was a lot of positive reinforcement for writing. And I think at some point when I started going into alternative medicine, someone said, you know, you're going to write a book. And I said, no, I didn't know that, but it kind of makes sense. And I think I started writing that book and it went through a gazillion different incarnations and different titles and but you know, eventually it became something where I was able to quiet my mind and just write what was coming through to me. And I've also found that some of that was also life experience that was sort of shaping what was happening. So uh, I don't know, it's it's a really it's a creative outlet and create create creation was it. Um, Jonathan Larson said, the opposite of war is in peace, it's creation. That was it. So I thought that was kind of cool. You can fight war by creating something different without, quote unquote, fighting war, because then we're adding energy to war. Well, that got pretty deep real quick. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, there's something about writing that's so magical and healing, right? Yeah. It's wonderful. How did you discover that you were an empath? You know, when the universe knocks on your door a few times and you really ideally should answer it. Well, I got little knocks here and there and I never answered them. I I didn't answer those knocks particularly. And those knocks were pretty much numerous people saying to me, do you know you're an empath? And for whatever reason, I didn't want to own it. My only experience of the word was really from a Star Trek episode, which ironically, I really liked. I like the character that was named an empath. I thought it was really powerful and I had dreams of doing that one day. But when people were just saying that randomly, I, I had some other connotation and understanding of the word. And I just said, no, 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 no. And one evening I went out with a 
several people. It ended up being a bar crawl, which is not my favorite thing to do. I haven't drank since college. So it was more of an attempt to be social. I just moved from New York to Portland and attempt to meet people. And this bar crawl was seven bars in seven hours, and I drank nothing but water the entire night. But at the end of the night, I felt drunk to the point where I couldn't speak. I was slurring my words. I couldn't walk a straight line. And when I finally got in a cab, it hit me. Oh, this is what being an empath is like. I just absorbed all the energy of all those drunk people, and now I feel drunk. Okay, got it. Thanks. <laughs> now what? <laughs> right? That was a And now what, of course, filled itself in later. But uh, that was the wake up call. Yeah, it was something that hit me so, you know, the proverbial like smack in the face, like, you're an empath. I've been trying to tell you. Why don't you want to listen to me? <laughs> but the experience of it was what made it happen. Uh, and I actually bring that into my work. I, I When I work with people, I'm very aware that I could potentially just talk their ears off and talk the entire session. And that's, there's, there's some pluses to that. They're looking to me for some knowledge that they don't have. But I know that if I take them through an experience and they have that experience, even if it's just a few minutes, it could be worth many sessions of talk, talking back and forth. And not that talking is bad. It's, it's a place for everything. But what I've found is having that experience. So when I had the experience of being an empath, it was worth much more than a bunch of people telling me that I was an empath. Mm, right experience yeah um, I think nothing can replace experience and when I asked you about what life is yeah that's one of, of the words that you used is an experience right um, what was the inspiration and intention of writing your book Empathopedia it's okay it's, it's the book that no one can pronounce it's the ultimate marketing play <laughs> It's kind of like the Wikipedia for empaths was the was the goal and the intention of that, and the bigger intention of like what can that bring? Well, it brought you know almost a decade worth of experience into paper that could reach more people than I could possibly reach as an individual doing one on one or even group sessions. The book can go and has gone to thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, so to get the information out there that one, it's okay to be an empath. And there are characteristics of that. But if you're not doing it in a healthy way, which most of us aren't taught, there is another way. And this way is something that had come to me through intuitive means, but also working with thousands of people to seeing what works and what doesn't work. It's beyond belief, right? It's kind of like we are saying earlier, the difference between beliefs and facts or observable facts. I can believe all these things to be true, but it doesn't matter. In the big picture, what is factual matters more. And the fact that thousands of people have been able to have very different life experiences and have expressed tremendous gratitude for putting that work out there, that to me is the intention of the book, to bring that wisdom out there, to have uh, to invite people to look, look at things just a little bit different, not to make anything that they've done uh, wrong, but to just fine-tune just enough so that being an empath or a highly sensitive person really is a blessing rather than the curse that it tends to be when it's not used well. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. You wrote another book I read, Self-Care for the Self-Aware. So that makes me think a lot about self-love and self-knowledge. Talk to me about 
some of the traits, the main traits of empath and highly sensitive people, and also the challenges that they face. So, so among the more common traits, if you walk into a room and you immediately know what area, what person you're drawn to, or one, what person to not go near, that's using your intuitive or sensitive or, or senses to inform your life. So a lot of people I work with have that ability. We can sense what's happening in a room or even with an individual uh, beyond sometimes what they're even conscious of. For example, if someone says, you say, hey, how are you doing? They say, I'm fine, but you know they're not, not just only by what they're saying or how they're saying it, but the energy underneath that we can have access to. We tend to prefer deeper conversations um, as opposed to how are you or how's the weather. We want to know, you know, where are you growing? What book have you read? How's your chakras doing? Um, you know, do you believe in past lives or you know, any of these kind of things? Uh, that tends to be very common as well. The drawback is when these skills aren't fine-tuned and we become more of a walking sponge for everything that everyone else is feeling. And those are the people that reach out to me. They want to know how to not be a sponge. And most of them have been taught different forms of walling, meaning something to separate uh, them from someone else. I'll make it first person. It must be easier. Something to separate me from someone else. So if I'm in a room with someone named uh, James, and James is belligerent and not really connecting with me, I might not enjoy being with them. Uh, so I might, just out of you know, desire for more inner peace, to put up some kind of walls. In my mind's eye, I might see the myself in a white bubble or uh, putting up a mirror in my mind's eye where the energy is reflected back to them. Different things that separate. And like we were saying earlier, that actually tends to create more belligerence. But if I can open to that person, then there's more of a chance of connecting. But the question is, how do we open safely? And in that book, there's a, an exercise called the keyhole, version 2.0, as opposed to the regular keyhole in the self-care book the more updated version, teaches you in a much deeper way how to not take on that person's energy to the point where you can be in front of them and still be yourself and not lose yourself and not get so defensive. Now, granted, on occasion, you might need to get defensive or you might need to leave the room. I, I get that if something is overwhelming. But to be able to have the tools open up to what's happening, I think is a good practice for life in general as well because not everyone is going to agree with each of us. And people are going to want very different things or they'll want similar things but have different ways of wanting to attain them. Even if they haven't worked, it's just that old paradigm repeating itself. Yeah, I love the way you say that in the keyhole process, welcoming all forms of energy. And that is very scary, right, for yes. an empath. Can be, yeah. It can be, right, right, can be. But then you also give some steps. Talk to me about those steps since this is a good time to discuss them. I would say step A, movement, B, breath, C, visualization, and D, vocalization. So when we're learning things that are new, the more senses that we involve, the more memorable, memorable it's going to be. And just a really good example to me at least is if, you, if I put a song on that you might not have heard in 20 years, and that song meant a lot to you at that time, you're likely going to remember every line, every lyric, every word in that song. 
You may remember where you were when you heard it. You may remember dancing to it at a club or whatever. It could be anything. It could have been on while you were meeting your significant other or really anything. So it, it makes it more memorable because it's more visceral. So the keyhole is a way to make these steps more tangible, to give people that experience like we're talking about earlier. So the more senses that we use, the more it's memorable. So I, I intuited a way to use all of those senses. Uh, there's a couple others that are there that you didn't list. I don't remember. If, <laughs> I haven't read the book since I wrote it, so I'm sorry if I don't remember was there. But by vocalizing, we're actually creating a vibration. And we're hearing it differently because our voice is different on the outside of our body than it is on the inside of your body. That's why when a lot of people hear themselves on tape, they say, oh, is that what I sound like? Answer is yes, right? So there are six senses that are being used using this updated keyhole versus just learning about it. So a good example, can anyone likely learn how to ride a bike by reading about it? Probably not. You got to get on the bike. Even if it means you fall a couple of times, that's how we learn. But our minds don't want to go through those steps. So I really harp on having the experience of doing that breath work, doing that visualization, doing the mantra, stating what's true, what you need to happen, not just to yourself, but to the universe. Uh, visualizing that light work, that energetic transfer, um, creating the vibration when you, when you speak out loud, hearing it differently. So you could say it's six times more more powerful. It's hard to quantify, obviously, but you can. I think it's pretty fair to say it's much more powerful than just learning about them or just reading about them. Certainly, I know a lot of people, uh, self included. I don't think I'm, you know, exceptional in this way. We tend to read a book. Sometimes we tend to read it just to get through it, as opposed to really absorbing every title or every word or every concept. Um, so that that's can be challenging as well. Uh, but ideally, doing the work, it even says, I think there's one exercise in there that says something like, stop reading this, now do it. <laughs> because I know most people are going to just keep reading. Okay, what's next? And what's also interesting about those steps and the way the mind works is I can give someone those steps, even a few more steps, and before they've even practiced that, they'll say, what else do you have? And I get it because the mind is insatiable, but at the same time, similar to walk to, you know, taking those steps up a ladder of evolution, until you get good at these steps, it doesn't make any sense to flood someone someone with more information. The mind might even filter those out, not not even take it in because everything's uh, cumulative or progressive. Uh, so, uh, but the but basically those steps teach people how to be in the presence of challenging people and not take anything on again to be more of a funnel than a sponge. Yeah, what a wonderful practice. We do need that. Would you say only empath or everyone? We in a way we're all sensitive. I'm around extroverts too, and because I am an introvert and perhaps an empath, I'm not sure. Most likely, yes. And I see people around me that they are as sensitive as I am, that they have this different personality only that doesn't seem like they are. But. Right. Sometimes personalities can cover up sensitivities. For example, like the some men grew up with, you know, you got to be macho, don't show your emotions. It doesn't mean you want, we don't have emotions. It means that they're buried. And unfortunately, buried emotions tend to create blockages that lead to pain and illness. So we're starting to learn 
that emotions are our best friends and being macho or being really stoic. Um, it may, may have been cool years ago, but if you think about it, cool means cold. I don't know any woman uh, who really, really wanted to get to know me when I was being cold or could get to know me if I was being cold, right? So I had to really soften and get out of that mode that um, trying to be cool, I think the key word there was trying. <laughs> uh, as one person told me when I told them I was giving up being cool to be more of a dork. And because a dork, you know, I mean, it has a negative connotation, but to me, it means someone is authentic and vulnerable and real and doesn't care if they talk like a baby in front of a bunch of adults or whatever. Um, and she had the, uh, the wisdom to say to me, yeah, you were never that cool to begin with, Dave. So, <laughs> 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 which was kind of, kind of a compliment as well as a little dig. But the idea was I was trying to be cool. And that means not heart-centered. That means, to me, that means very left brain, very logical, linear 3D world, which there is obviously, and it does exist, and we should work with it. But there's also much more to the whole picture. But your specific question, is everyone sensitive? I think we are. We just show it differently uh, or not. The not is a problem. Yeah, we hide them. Hide those emotions. You know, can't let this be seen. And we learn that. This is not something that we're born doing. Most babies are born crying. But someone comes along and says, hey, here's a pacifier or, or whatever. And granted, the baby could be hungry. It might need to be changed. It might be uncomfortable. Sure, those are possibilities. But what if they're grieving a separation from the physical mother? or an energetic separation from source energy, well, I think that needs to be grieved out. But we typically taught, not safe, stop it, or here's something to distract. Wow. Um, there's so many uh, different kinds of healing modalities out there. Um, your book offers that too. And I really love all this work, the we are trying to do, or we are doing, not trying really, we are doing, of healing. Um, although at some level, there's nothing to be healed, really. Everything's perfect as it is. Yeah, you talk about the, uh, the soul's path. I'm only responsible for my own soul's path, which is a powerful thing to say. Uh, just being responsible for everything in your life in general, it's a very powerful statement. Um, when did you realize this? And another question is, when you say soul, soul's path, does it connect with the spirit? A lot of people use the word spirit or higher self, divine force. I think it can be the same. I think more important than defining it is how do we use it and how do we understand it? And if a soul needs to experience, let's just say X, Y, and Z emotion or situation, it's going to find a way to get you to experience those emotions, even if, or experiences, or whatever they are, even if our mind judges them as negative or bad or even wrong. So the soul typically wins in the long run. In the short run, our minds typically win. Not that it's a win or lose specifically, but just an idea that if from my understanding, a soul needs to experience, let's just say there's a thousand different experiences to have, and it could be way more than that. It's hard to quantify. We're going to have lifetime after lifetime to experience each one of those things. And part of it, I think, is 
especially experiencing the things that we call negative, part of that is if I didn't experience what I would call my shadow self, no way I really can have compassion for someone else in that position. And I think that's what made me uh, much more attuned to people and more able to hold uh, a space of unconditional love no matter what someone is experiencing or talking about. Uh, so the, I had those experiences where my mind would say, I wish that never happened. But on a soul level, it needed to happen to teach me, you know, what is it like to hurt someone? Is this something that you want to continue? You know, I'm not proud of it, but it's just true. And I, I don't know anyone that's never hurt anyone. I just know people that don't say that they did. It wasn't conscious and wasn't malicious. It was acting out what some call the unconscious or the shadow elements. And those things can get really loud, if you will. They can, they can almost take over if they're not owned. So part of the soul path, part of the human experience with that soul path is to own every possibility so that they don't own us. Because if we don't own them, they get louder and louder to get your attention. And it tends to make people do things and the mind justifies those things that are clearly not in theirs or anyone else's benefit, but come from a place of fear and security or a need for power. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it can be really intense, but it's vulnerable and real. And that I think is what we're, Maybe we're missing. We're miss, I think we're missing humility overall. I think in this country, especially, certainly, celebrity culture has created, you know, a very fictitious version of reality that most people can't live. And even the people that are living them aren't really living a, a good, or maybe that's a judgment, but aren't living what appears to me as an expanded, loving life. They tend to, you know, the more you have, the more you fear people taking that from you. Yeah, yeah, fear. Would you say that fear is the, somehow the opposite of love? Yeah. Ultimately, I think fear is the only enemy. And even enemy is a bit of a trigger word. I don't mean it's the, it's the least understood and most... It's a thing that's dealt with, dare I say, incorrectly more than anything else. It tends to manifest outward in possession, wars, um, bullying, or... You know, so many different things uh, based on fear. And there's an existential fear that everyone has of being insignificant, not mattering, not feeling seen and heard, uh, et cetera. And I think those things are covered up with sometimes abrasive or even abusive tendencies. You know, the phrase only hurt people hurt other people. And everyone's hurt, you know, so. I think my job, at least from what I'm presently doing, is to help people with that hurt, to help it hurt less. Because the more we heal ourselves, the more, the more loving and compassionate we can be to others. It's like a true compassion, not just saying, you know, something that people feel. That's, that's the goal to me. Yeah. What a beautiful purpose. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Uh, so I'll be asking you my final questions. I'm related to the subject, but you can always bring it back. In your book, you have a lot more. I love the uh, pattern or, or truth section where we can identify what is a pattern and what's truth. And I also really like what you said about what we 
own cannot own us. And then you give the example of the AA, uh, alcoholics, and the way they own that, being an alcoholic. I never thought of that way. I never liked the idea, like you mentioned in the book, about labeling ourselves as something that's negative in a way, so it's going to stay. But you explain uh, the reason to own whatever our traits or qualities are. We don't have even to judge them as weak or strong. It's just what it is. Uh, so beautifully written, and I, I see the compassion there and, and you being very authentic and open up your heart. Also the sections, the healing sections, um, what we have been observing, the, uh, the energies, and also what is our own pain, like you're saying, our own internal hurts. So the book is really well written, and um, I'll have to go back to it myself, um, add to my own healing experiences, because um, they happen every day for all of us. And we, we get traumatized every day, and um, we have a chance to heal those wounds. So I have a few more questions for you. Before I do that, would you like to add anything or read a passage from your book? Well, I like to read from my book. Um... Not necessarily. I don't even have a copy around, so I'm afraid to do that. Oh, yeah, I don't. <laughs> right, that's funny. <laughs> so would you like to add anything? Nothing, nothing comes to mind. I, I think you're doing a wonderful job. <laughs> and let me pick them. I have so many here. I think I'll ask you this question. Um, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? I think I alluded to it. It's that I have a shadow side. I think a lot of us grow up thinking that we don't have that, that we're not capable of hurting people, that we're not capable of, you know, things that seem less than loving. The reality is we're everything. We're just as much love as we are fear, as much as we are anger, as much as we are hatred and silliness and sexiness and you name it, we're everything. That's one of the reasons why the whole concept of trying to get rid of anything to me doesn't work. I'm trying to get rid of this. I'm, and I hear it all the time. I have clients that come to me. I want to get rid of this way of thinking. Well, you're actually adding more energy to that way of thinking that you're trying to fight. Whereas, let me make it more tangible. So let's say um, somebody walks by and they're dressed in some way that seems ridiculous. Now, if, if I look at them and I have a judgment and I say, oh, I can't believe they're wearing that. Well, that could be my experience, but what I've learned to do is catch that judgment and say, wait a minute, that wasn't even what I really think. That was just my immediate reaction, my judgmental self, and then embrace it. And then in my mind's eye, I might apologize to that person, send a prayer for them, but I'm also sending a prayer to myself that I can accept that part of me that just did or said something that was less than loving. Because if I fight it, if I make myself wrong for that quick judgment, then that judgment gets more energy. So then I'm judging the judgment, which and that becomes you know a cycle. So I practice catching it, uh, practice catching um, judgments or um, anything like that, or and then embracing it, saying this is a part of me. There's one section in the book where it says you know let this be your mantra. And it gives a few a few examples. And so uh, you asked me to read something from the book. I'm just going to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me. But it was something like, uh, I have anger, but that doesn't make me an angry person. I have sadness, but that doesn't define me. I have 
uh, fear, but that's not who I am. I am much more than all of these things as individual aspects. I'm all of these things. So if I don't define myself as a certain way and I open up to my entire experience, I think I'd be a much more effective person, healer, friend, partner, uh, et cetera. Um, but if I'm judging those parts of myself, it's not really going to go anywhere. So learning that I had those parts or, um, you know, that I might, you know, not, not now as much, but in college, I, I used to complain a lot and I didn't even know it till a friend who I really respected said, you know, you complain a lot, a lot. And I still remember saying, no, I never, I never complain. And he then listed like 10 things that I had said in the last 10 minutes that were complaints. And I said, oh my God, I complain a lot. And from that moment on, I've been very conscious of it and try to catch it if that's happening because complaining doesn't really help anyone. Sometimes eventing isn't so bad, but if I'm really focusing on that, that's not going to help. So when we, sometimes other people get to elucidate what's within our, within us as individuals, what's within me, I get to, I get mirrored back and reflected hopefully by a loving person who doesn't say you're an idiot for complaining. And even if they do, I can say, well, thank you for pointing it out to me. Yes, I can be an idiot and I've just been one. Thank you. And I'm also very intelligent and loving. So I'm everything. Thank you for reminding me. Right? <laughs> if I get defensive, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, I absolutely love your wisdom. Yeah. What you just said. Yeah, that, that's it. That's it. Uh, we are our life, not apart from life. Life is everything. That's right. And that's funny because my follow-up question usually uh, to that question is, do you believe in unconditional self-love? But I'm not going to ask you this one. <laughs> right. Um, what is another word for healing, Dave? Wholeness. Wholeness. Mm. Achieving wholeness. That's, to me, that's the goal. I mean, that's a great question. Let me, if I, if I can expand upon that because if, um, I think this is highly misunderstood. So hopefully I can explain it as well as possible in a short period of time. So let's just say we have um, X symptom. We want to get to a place of healing. And we might go to one or 10 different practitioners to make that happen. So we're chasing the healing. What we're chasing is an eradication of symptoms or at least a minimization of symptoms. And I get that. I'm not here to say that's wrong or bad. I get that. I've had back pain. I, I had debilitating back pain for 20 years. I would have done anything to not be in pain. And I tried and nothing really worked. Um, that was way back when, uh, until I really understood what was happening. So understanding what's happening is what allows me to become more whole. And what I've understood is that the universe wants us to learn just as, it, as much, if not much more, as it wants us to heal. The irony is that the learning leads to healing. So if I'm just seeking pain relief, I can just take a medication or get a massage or something and nothing wrong with those if that's what someone needs. But if I'm not learning what's causing that pain or discomfort or depression or whatever, and I'm not working with that directly, I'm not leaning towards wholeness. I'm leaning towards symptom relief. Um, and the wholeness to me is, is the goal. And we alluded to that earlier that wholeness is I am everything. I am part, this pain is part of me right now. This is part of my experience and how can I be with that and what is it teaching me? If anything, what is there? And can I slow down and intuit and feel what's there 
as opposed to my mind trying to figure it out. This is another thing. It's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's important. A lot of people come to me with a certain idea of what they want to work on and sometimes even how they want to work on it. And oftentimes I'll intuit that, okay, we need to work on something else. And they'll be like, I don't know. And after we work with it a little bit, they always say, yep, you were right. And it's not about me being right. It's, it's not, that's, that's not it. It's about tuning in and seeing what's beyond the level of mind that actually needs to be worked with, that can be worked with, rather than what the mind wants to work on. Because often that's not the issue. That's uh, something external of the issue. Well said. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, the uh, understanding. I love that word. Often understanding leads to deeper knowledge or ultimately to unconditional love. Right? The more we understand things. It's funny. The closer we get to things, really, the less we understand. And that's when we fall into the unconditional love because it's the mystery. Like, wow, this is amazing. And that's the miracle of life. Um, so two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I've thought about it before. It's the same thing that says, um, if I got an extreme diagnosis, would I do anything different? Well, I would tune into what that diagnosis was trying to tell me, certainly. But um, if I was <laughs> pending death, um, I like to believe that the people that I know know that I love them. Um, I'm not attached to having specific experiences. A, a friend of mine traveled the world for the last few years, and he's like, you got to travel the world. And I said, I don't know if I do. You know, that might be his reality, not necessarily mine. I don't, um, if spirit wants me to travel the world, I'll be happy to do it. Although right now with the pandemic, probably not going to happen. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> not a good idea. <laughs> Sorry to expand upon that. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like I'm, but that doesn't, doesn't mean I'm not open to learning things. I'm always trying to learn new things, but I don't, and I guess another way of saying it is, do I have any regrets? And right now I don't think I do. That's a wonderful answer. Really wonderful one. And um, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? <laughs> uh, I'm going to narrow that down with a, something different um, as opposed to listing them. A quote by Socrates who said, I know nothing but the fact of my own ignorance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he used to say those things a lot, right? I know nothing. There's nothing. Well, I mean, he knew a lot, but I mean, you know, we know what we know, I guess. And it's even, I mean, it's incredibly wonderful when we can practice what we know. So I guess um, you do know a lot. <laughs> based, on, based on experience, at the same time, I'm open to, you know, there are many people that felt a new, so example, in the 1980s, there was this idea that stress was, called by, was caused by spicy foods. The next decade had nothing to do with that. It was stressful life uh, or, or stomach disorders, I'm sorry, was, was caused by spicy foods. So people cut back on spicy foods, but then the next decade, they realized, oh, that hasn't really changed the incidence of stomach disorders, so it must be something else. So what we know to be true may be true, but there also can be a bigger truth. And my personal goal is to continually be tuning into tuning into what hopefully is a bigger truth and then to be able to share that hopefully in a way that is uh, understandable or relatable. Yeah, yeah. 
No, I do understand that. Yeah. Um, just being open, right, Dave? That's really the real knowledge in a way. Yeah, in the end, just be open to whatever comes, the way it comes. It has been a wonderful conversation. Um, peaceful, loving. Um, I love your wisdom and, yeah, and your presence too. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Thank you for asking. And and likewise, I appreciate your inquiries. And like I said earlier, you, you made me think, which I appreciate. <laughs> uh, everything is at my website. And it's my name, Dave Markowitz, D-A-V-E-M-A-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z.com. And uh, every, yeah, everything is there. There's, there's even 15-minute uh, free consults if someone's not sure about working with me and want to ask specific questions. There is a frequently asked questions Site, uh, section on the website as well. Actually, two of them. Everything is there. I'm doing. I do one-on-one sessions. I'm also doing group work, which is a pay-what-you-can basis. And the group work has been amazing. Uh, twice a week, and there's a different subject matter that I intuit, and uh, it's been well attended and well received. So that's that's something that's really cool. So to have an experience, right? Much as I appreciate book sales, that's a, a good start to have that experience. So that information is on there as well. Great. Really great. Thank you so much again, Dave. And we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about David Markowitz, please visit his website, davemarkowitz.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.